Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just a quick note of thanks to the photographer who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. That was Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. A reasonable week this week. Actually, nothing much was happening on sanctions, or at least I didn't think it would. And that was until what was happening in Russia this week with Putin's declaration. That caused a bit of a flutter in all the international dovecuts. There's been a good range of stuff in relation to money laundering and a little bit on fraud. As ever, links to the principal documents mentioned in the podcast are listed in the podcast description. Let's start with sanctions, where the news pepped up a bit this week, following the sham referendums in those sovereign parts of Ukraine, unlawfully annexed by the Russian Federation. There is also some sanctions enforcement here and abroad. First, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has announced a sanctions enforcement action against Hong Kong International Wine and Spirits Competition Limited for violating sanctions which predate the most recent Russian invasion of Ukraine. The notice has that between September 2017 and August 2020, the wine agency received three payments and 78 bottles of wine from the state unitary enterprise of the Republic of Crimea Production Agrarian Union, which flows tippingly off the tongue. Massandra, apparently. Um, It's a listed entity for entry into various wine competitions, so shouldn't have been paying money, uh, shouldn't have been receiving money from them, or in fact wine. This amounted to a receipt of almost £4,000 in tangible economic resources. The wine agency also supplied intangible economic resource in the form of publicity to that particular producer. The £30,000 fine was originally levied in April this year, but the wine agency appealed, ultimately unsuccessfully. Further this week, Offsea has also amended its UK sanctions list. There is one correction and a further 92 entries have been added to the consolidated list, and they are now subject to an asset freeze, and these were issued on the 26th of September this week. The additions to the list, all 92 of them, are listed in the annex to the document provided in the podcast description. And if you think I'm reading them all out, you've got another thing coming. Uh, There's also a link to the government press release in the podcast description, which provides detail of the star names from the list, as well as the government's usual hammed-up narrative that supports these sanctions announcements. These latest sanction announcements were in response to those referenda held by the Russian Federation in Ukraine this week. Also, on the 28th of September this week, further amendments were made to the individual sanctions listings, uh, but they they do remain subject to an asset freeze. Uh, These are also listed in the document, which I link in the podcast description. Uh, I'll also just quickly mention there was a last-minute addition on Friday this week, with the announcement by Offsea, of the designation of Elvira Nabulina, who is the governor of the Russian Central Bank. Uh, The government press announcement provided, Nabulina has been instrumental in steering the Russian economy through the Russian regime's illegal war against Ukraine and extending the ruble 
into the Ukrainian territories that are temporarily controlled by Russia. Nabulina has been sanctioned and is personally subject to an asset freeze and a travel ban. One final bit of news from the UK this week is certainly worth following over coming months, I suppose, and that is that Peter Avon, the sanctioned Russian oligarch, is currently challenging the National Crime Agency investigation into uh, him uh, and those associated with him. The National Crime Agency is alleging that Avon is using companies to evade sanctions and which Avon contends hold no reasonable basis for purported suspicion necessary to raise the sanction. The case continues and, I suspect, is likely to be one which is drawn out. Now we turn attention away from the United Kingdom towards, first of all, the European Union, where it's, <laughs> there's been a great deal of activity as it seeks to formulate its response to what it also regards, like the British government, as a sham referendum or sham referendums carried out by Russia in eastern Ukraine. The eighth sanctions package will, uh, will pave uh, the way for a new round of sanctions. It introduces uh, import bans on beauty and makeup preparations, shaving products, including aftershave, as well as deodorants. The sanctions will also ban exports of EU-made goods, particularly technology used in the Russian military, namely electronic and chemical components, together with an oil price cap. Of course, the democracy of the EU requires unanimity in relation to its sanctions policy, and it's yet to be seen whether Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, will agree. He's probably Russia's only remaining ally of sorts left within the EU, and he has been a vocal critic and naysayer when it comes to the European Union sanctions regime on Russia. This week his chief of staff went on record to say that Hungary would not support further energy sanctions. Presumably the coming days and weeks will hold plenty for the negotiators within the EU to hammer out a deal acceptable to all its members. The link to the EU's press announcement is, of course, in the podcast description. And finally this week on sanctions in the US, which has announced the prosecution of Russian billionaire Oleg Deripaska for contravention of the US sanctions regime. The US Department of Justice alleges that Deripaska violated sanctions by ensuring that payments were made to maintain three of his properties and by engaging a third party to buy a Californian music studio on his behalf. And we move away from sanctions this week. Let's leave it. I suspect there'll be more next week. And we turn our attention to money laundering. There's quite a bit of interesting money laundering detail coming across the wires this week. We'll start with the United States of America, where the Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced a desire to see the Bank Secrecy Act extended to cover non-fungible tokens, NFTs, to deter money laundering. This follows a growing sense of unease developing among policymakers about the degree to which non-fungible tokens may be used to commit money laundering. In fact, this is beyond, this stretches beyond the US to other jurisdictions. The EU is looking at it and also the UK government too. The Justice Department of the US has indicated that it's open to an amendment of the Act so that due diligence and suspicious transaction reporting operates in relation to firms that deal with NFTs across all 
sectors. Now, sticking with the US, the Treasury Department has announced the creation of a database of business ownership in order to support the policy objective of combating financial crime. These kinds of register are already well established in other jurisdictions around the world and tend at least to be on, if not the Financial Action Task Force's tick list of anti-money laundering good practice. Certainly the UN has made mood, or the IMF rather, has made mood, uh, moves in this direction. The proposal is targeted at businesses with fewer than 20 employees, which tend to be where the sham businesses coalesce, because of course they're fake, they don't have that many employees. Well, all those businesses which have fewer than 20 employees will be required to register from the 1st of January 2024. The press, le uh, the press release and the fact sheet which accompanied the announcement are available in the podcast description. Moving now to the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which we covered in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, which has passed its first House of Commons reading. In response to the publication of the bill, the Law Society of England and Wales has announced unease about the proposal to permit the SRA, the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority, to impose unlimited fines on members where they fall below relevant conduct standards. The Law Gazette reported this week that I, Stephanie Boyce, the President of the Law Society of England and Wales, said, and this is a quote from the article, the SRA's fining powers have only just been substantially increased in relation to traditional firms and individuals from £2,000 to £25,000. We're concerned, that is the Law Society, about what the proposed additional powers could mean for our members and how effective they will be in combating economic crime. We strongly urge the government to consider carefully the proportionality of any further regulation, given that there has been little evidence of the effectiveness or otherwise of the most recent changes to the SRA's fining powers. To be frank, I can't really see anything changing since the government seems determined to impose these strengthened powers. However, uh, one can only imagine that the increased powers would only really be used in the most extreme kind of case of failure, or dare I suggest, in cases of deliberate collusion between law firms and criminal, uh, the criminal sector. Such cases, of course, would be rare, and in all probability, they'd result in other, more serious action from other enforcement agencies in any event. Finally, on money laundering this week, we highlight further actions being taken by the Gambling Commission in relation to money laundering failings. We've highlighted in uh, various uh, is, uh, episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast action, enforcement action, being taken by the Gambling Commission. This week, it's uh, Petra... Petfer? P-E-T-F-R-E. Not quite sure how that's pronounced. Maybe I should have practiced it before I started recording. But nevertheless, that company uh, is in the firing line. Now, it may be better known to you as Betfred and Odds King, which certainly would have been easier for me to pronounce anyway. They've been fined £2.9 million for social responsibility and anti-money laundering failures. Now, I'm not really interested in the former, although... Where there is an anti-money laundering failing, there very often is a social 
corporate social responsibility failing as well. But I'm not, I'm not like I said, I'm not interested in the corporate social, social responsibility failing. I am interested in the anti-money laundering failures. The decision notice provides the following. They had not fully taken into account the money laundering and terrorist financing risks connected with its business, in particular risks connected to country or geographic areas, customers, transactions and products and services. Secondly, they did not have appropriate policies, procedures and controls in place to manage and mitigate the money laundering and terrorist financing risks, including thresholds that were inadequate, having insufficient information on customers and no evidence of ongoing monitoring prior to initial financial triggers being reached. Not ensuring, also, that its policies, procedures and controls were implemented effectively, including not following guidance issued by the, chari- uh, by the Commission, the Gambling Commission, and not taking into account any applicable learning or guidelines published by the Commission. Finally, failing thoroughly to implement the measures described in the money laundering regulations, including failing to identify money laundering and terrorist financing risks to which the business was subject, and failing to establish and maintain policies, procedures and controls to manage and mitigate the risks effectively. The operator also provided inadequate employee training, failed to scrutinise transactions to ensure that they were consistent with their knowledge of the customer and their risk profile, and failed to conduct sufficient anti-money laundering customer due diligence and source of funds checks. Just about everything that they should have done, they seem not to have done. That's it for money laundering this week. Now, we end this week by looking at a a fairly important fraud story. And certainly if you're involved in the payment sector, this will be one which is acutely relevant to you. The payment systems regulator has announced a consultation in relation to the reimbursement requirement for authorised push payment scams. The press release, which... Look, I've only read the press release because, frankly, the consultation is 85 pages long and I just haven't had time. So the press release provides, and frankly, it gives you the um, the York Notes version. The payment systems regulator wants the payments industry to change the way it manages authorised push payment scams. The measures being proposed include, first, requiring reimbursement in all but exceptional cases so more victims will get their money back, to improve the level of protection for APP scam victims so there is greater consistency and protections for all victims irrespective of who they bank with, and thirdly, to incentivise banks and building societies to prevent APP scams, because responsibility for allowing fraudulent payments is the responsibility of both the sending and receiving banks or building societies. It continues, In line with protections for other payments and financial services, reimbursement would be on all payments over 100 quid and subject to an excess of no more than £35. We want to see the requirements for mandatory reimbursement in place for consumers as swiftly as possible. This consultation will ensure the payment systems regulator can make the necessary regulatory changes as soon as the law has been changed, which will allow the PSR to take action. 
The document is relevant to the payments industry, consumer groups and payment service providers, particularly those involved in APP scams or at least fighting APP scams. Frankly, I think, however, it would certainly benefit from a broader readership, this document, and I would say the general public should have a good nose around in it, if only for no other reason than it's likely to alert them to the possibility of authorised push payment fraud as a genuine threat and reality. The consultation is open until 5pm on the 25th of November 2022. The link to the consultation is available in the podcast description. That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>